Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon, who does a show called um, The Stories We Live By. And somebody pointed out to me, uh, I'm going to be doing a show on Friday. Uh, we're going to talk about ADHD and the diseasing of America's children. Um, but she looked and she listened to my first broadcast, which was 12 years ago. I, time goes so fast at this point. Uh, a lot of days seem to move slowly, and then I look around and boom. Uh, so much time goes by so fast. In any event, um, I did this impromptu. I haven't even organized my thoughts, although I know basically what I want to say. I had a conversation with a young person who's going into a uh, PhD program uh, in school psych, um, and what she will learn in the school psych and what she has already learned, uh, uh, she's a college graduate uh, this year, although there was no graduation for any of the kids graduating this year because of this, this uh, virus that uh, has upended everyone's life in, in ways that are from merely annoying to catastrophic. Anyway, um, uh, I, want, I, have, I talk about my book on this show all the time, um, and I wanted her and him, whoever these people are, and all of the, dawned on me, everybody who's graduating college and going into psychology, uh, to, to, as a very popular direction, uh, to know several things. One is whatever I say today, and a lot of it is negative about the field of psychology and school psychology and clinical psychology, and what she will learn and he will learn, anybody will learn in a school psych program, is largely going to be the same in many, many ways uh, as um, what they would learn in a clinical psychology program. And that will be to diagnose uh, children and adolescents and adults uh, who don't fit in, who create a problem in one way or another as having a mental illness or something called a mental disorder. And what it's important for me to say in advance is that I spent 50 years in the field and I miss it terribly. It's now really not practical for me to continue to work. Um, but I miss it terribly. And over the years, I began, when I was a young psychologist, uh, fully in agreement that if somebody hallucinated, if somebody believed that God was screaming at them that they were a, a, a witch and should jump off a roof, they had a disease called schizophrenia and needed to be treated. Uh, and, and I even had, I remember I had a wonderful course in abnormal psychology um, that uh, uh, took me uh, uh, once to, on a Saturday morning to a mental hospital, a, a unit in a, a hospital, Elmhurst General Hospital, where uh, so-called mentally ill people were paraded back before us, got very excited about what I was seeing, and I had a wonderful young psychiatrist who taught the course. I even remember his name, Milton Malif. Uh I wonder how he is or if he still is. Anyway, as the years went on, and I'm going to talk about some of these landmarks, 
I learned that I really didn't believe after a while there was such an actual thing as mental disorders. And the turning point for that, but, but, but I still love being in the field. In fact, the more I joined what we call critical psychology and those psychologists who knew and under, had a deep understanding of the terrible flaws and damage that's done both to people and society by labeling millions and millions of people defective, medically defective. Uh, and I want to just go through how that changed over the years, the basis of the defect uh, in their soul, in their personality. But the more I was critical, the more I loved the field. So that anybody who hears this or reads my book and understands and accepts some of the criticisms of the field, uh, I am not also saying don't go into the field. Under no circumstances, if you're excited about becoming a psychologist, become a psychologist. I can't think of anything better than somebody can do with their life than work with people uh, in, in, a, in a good way, and I'll talk about that before we finish this show, and hopefully convince anybody hearing this to actually read my book and other books. If they like mine, uh, there's a fellow named Chuck Ruby, Charles Ruby, Ph.D., who is um, just about to bring out a pub self-published book called Smoke and Mirrors. And, this in the, and you can listen to one of my archived uh, broadcast from last year where I interview him about his book. And what we're going to do, uh, what happens is that the clearer you become on what is the dark side of the psychiatric model of mental disorders, the more you can help people and the more you help, the happier you are being in the field. Right? But this isn't really taught in school. You sort of have to figure it out yourselves. In 1976, I had already been a psychologist for 15 years, and I was recommended a book called The Myth of Mental Illness by a psychiatrist named Thomas Zoss. Zoss wrote that book. He wrote a book called The Myth of Psychotherapy. He wrote a number of books that were attacked, and he was attacked viciously for writing them, by the psychological and psychiatric establishment. Um, and when you would read a review of the book, it was clear nobody read the book. And they would attack Zoss instead, that he must be crazy, he must be mentally ill, because to deny the existence, let's say, of hallucinations and the crazy thoughts that we call delusions makes you crazy. Right? But he never said that. He never said that the behaviors being labeled as illnesses weren't problems. In the same way that I was having a discussion with two people who work with children who have all kinds of serious learning problems, speech problems, uh, uh, functioning problems in school, that if I said there are no such thing as, as these problems, I'm saying that the problems don't exist. The problems do exist, and they can be very, very serious. Unless you do something about helping these children or helping the adults or whoever we're talking about, find a way to live, change how they behave, change how they think, but labeling them 
as having an illness is not the right way. And there are two issues here. One is when you say somebody is mentally ill, you're talking about behavior that people are engaging in. They can or can't read. They hear voices. They talk to God in a way that no one else would talk to God. Um, they are so sad and lonely and unhappy they can't get out of bed. They're so anxious that they can't function. These are all emotions and things that people do. And if you judge an emotion or a behavior, the only way you can judge it is with a moral statement. It's basically saying they shouldn't do this, and there's something wrong with them because they're doing it. And whenever you work with a child or an adult and you say there's something wrong with that individual, you and they are in trouble. Where do you go from there? Okay. The other thing is that as the years went on, the number of, of diagnostic categories, the number of so-called mental illnesses began to grow in horrendous ways. When I came into the field and I was licensed in 1969, that's a long time ago. It doesn't seem like a long time ago in some ways. There were 25 mental illnesses listed, none of them for children. And in most cases, the, the psychoanalytic theory that all of these problems, these psychological problems, and they were seen as psychological problems, all of these problems were the result of childhood experiences, uh, abusive parents, neglectful parents, uh, being involved with parents who had terrible conflict in their relationship, parents who over-disciplined, parents who under-disciplined, all kinds of ways in which childhood could affect the outcome, the growth of the individual. And the mental illness that were given was one of 25. Rarely were drugs given. I know somebody very close to me who had a terrible episode in his 20s, went to a, a, a psychiatrist that I found for this individual, recommended through my doctoral program at NYU. And when he said he couldn't function being on these medications, so-called medications, the doctor said, then don't take them. And this is an individual who went on when he was released from the stress of his life and he understood more about it because the psychiatrist worked with him as an individual who needed to understand something, not who had something wrong with him. He was able to make and create a wonderful life for himself, his, his wife, have children, have a family, and really a very rich life which unfortunately doesn't happen when a person really becomes convinced there's something wrong with them. As when I came into the field, I had to have my work signed off by a psychiatrist. Some years later, I didn't. I could sign off and fill in the insurance forms, which was the devil's deal we made to grow the field, uh, because it was medical insurance, third-party payers, that brought enough money into the field to have people other than fairly wealthy people who could afford to pay two or three times a week, $100 a session for their so-called psychotherapy. When the field blew up with psychologists and then psychiatric social workers came into the field and there was no evidence that anybody could point to 
that a trained psychologist or a trained social worker couldn't work as well with these so-called mentally ill individuals than a psychiatrist. None at all. And the success rate uh, of all of these individuals seemed to rest on what kind of relationship existed between the, uh, the therapist, the person who was doing this called the therapist, which I put in quotes because what I did when I talked to somebody was nothing to do with therapy and had nothing to do with medicine. I never spent a moment in medical school. The psychiatrist began losing ground. And in 1990, they came up with the help of the drug companies with the notion that all of these were problems, either genetic and or uh, uh, neurological or chemical. There were chemical imbalances in the brain. Uh, It's now 30 years later, and there have been no genes, no chemicals isolated, nothing biological could be shown to have caused all of these problems. But that really isn't the issue. If you go back in history, the first asylums where crazy people were locked up uh, were uh, asylums run by what were called then mad doctors. They worked with the mad There was no nomenclature yet in the 1800s or 1700s about mental illness. And what was discovered is that most of the people in these asylums who really behaved in very problematic ways weren't suffering from childhood, bad childhood experiences, but they had damaged brains from syphilis. Syphilis used to run rampant. There was no treatment for it. Most of the time, because sex was shameful, people wouldn't even show it or go to the doctor. So it was spread around freely, sort of like COVID-19, before we knew that a person could carry it without any symptoms whatsoever. And many people went mad because their brains were being eaten by a bug that was known as the syphilitic spirochete. Okay? But the moment that happened, the asylums were emptied out, and these people were now treated not by mad doctors who later became psychiatrists, but they were treated by medical doctors, as they should have been from the beginning. But ignorance kept them in these asylums, often being treated in weird and terrible ways, which really hasn't changed that much. In the 1990s, psychiatry declared that the the decade of the brain. And right now, there were over 500 diagnoses. Children were rarely diagnosed. Children could be troublesome, but they were seen as children. They needed different or better discipline. Now children are not only being diagnosed by the millions as learning disabled, as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, And it's not that some of these kids don't have short attention spans or that they really don't have problems in school, especially as the schools are set up for them in many cases. But the belief that they're disordered, to tell another human being you're disordered and you need to be cured, has terrible ramifications. But the issue is still the same. If, in fact, we find underlying 
biochemical, neurological, and genetic problems for the wide range of these diagnoses being hoisted and thrown out uh, 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 on the public with incredible billions of dollars being spent in advertising, you see. Um, and then if the drug doesn't work, there's a beauty on uh, somebody who doesn't have, the, the drug isn't working. And by the way, these drugs hurt and make worse the psychological and physical problems of about 70% of the people who take them. 30% feel better, but then 30% of people who drink heavy feel better, right? <clears throat> what began to happen is that more and more of these diagnostic terms with the statement that they have an underlying neurological problem, which hasn't been found, but if were found, would put the, the, them not in the hands of teachers or psychotherapists or school psychologists or private practitioners, but in the hands of neurologists, endocrinologists, and doctors trained in medicine as to how to diagnose and deal with these underlying conditions that have not been found. Again, if they are found, then it, we have not a mental problem, but a biological medical problem. So that there is no such thing as mental illness. There can't be. Because to judge behavior and then call it an illness is to make a moral judgment that the person shouldn't do this or should do that. They should behave differently than they're behaving. And then call it a medical term. And they use the word mental illness. The problem is that more and more and more of the children and adults being helped are being put on these drugs, which are then called medicines. And they're not medicines. They're just drugs. Uh, when they give children drugs for their hyperactivity, they give them stimulant drugs. If you or I who are listening to this, wherever you are, or will listen to it once the show goes archived, uh, and you sold these drugs on the street without a license, you can get 25 years to life for selling very dangerous drugs. They should not be sold, but they should never be called medicines, because they're not. So here we have the basic problem that I want anybody coming into the field to be aware of. Right? I don't want them not to go into the field. I just want them to understand that so much of what is being taught is taught by people who are true believers in this, that they are mental illnesses and there's no problem, and others who know it's a problem, but because you can't earn a living unless you use the medicalized language, continue to use it. And I know this. I belong to a wonderful organization called the International Society for Ethical, uh, you, Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry. Uh, I started with them in the early part of this century when it was called the International, uh, not, it was IC, International, oh, I forget, SPP. But anyway, it was the same group which broke apart and formed two different organizations. Right? Um, and now this one is, is taken over, and this is the one I still belong to. Right. Um, I continued to do this, and the older I got, and the more I realized 
that what I was doing was intellectually and morally unjustified, the more I became aware that if I really helped somebody, I really had to treat them as if they didn't have a disability, but they had a difference. And that the difference, the difference was giving them serious problems, adjusting in the society or in the life, in the family or the school where they were working. Now, I also taught for almost my entire career. In fact, I, in many ways, I spent more years teaching. Um, and, and what I learned by merging my ideas, which I talk about in my book, for, as a professor of, of psychology and a practitioner of, of clinical psychology, was that when I really helped somebody, when we formed a, a sense of trust, when I was honest with them, and with many of my patients, or so-called patients, who were uh, uh, bright and educated, I would tell them what I believed. And if we continued to, to didn't go into a FIFA service, which many of my, the people I work with over the years really couldn't afford, that we were doing something that was kind of shady. We were doing it. They agreed and I agreed that the benefit was worth the risk and worth, but nobody really cared what we were doing anyway, because huge amounts of money were being made out of this. And sometimes it's money talks and everything else walks. Don't mean to sound cynical, uh, but, but, but that, you know, is something that one learns uh, when you are in any business. And while being a psychologist is a helping profession, it's also a business. And your patient is also a customer. So I loved what I did. I miss it all the time. Like I miss many things. When I, uh, after I got retired and, and slowly but surely uh, 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 left the field, the last eight years I worked in nursing homes, uh, which I could say very few really bad things about them. Most of them were clean, well-run, but they were sort of factories for old people. Um, and people, I would get a call from, from a, a nurse, the head nurse, please see patient so-and-so. Um, they're not cooperative. Um, no, I didn't see my, I, I would see them and I would talk to them. But if the problem was really they were not cooperative, it was not my job to make them cooperative, that was the nursing problem. That was the doctor's problem. It was not the individual's problem. Uh, I would suggest to them they be more cooperative because you really don't want an overworked aide to really get pissed off at you because if you think you had problems when they were taking good care of you, you, were, you would imagine if you <laughs> took uh, uh, um, uh, when they got angry at you and you weren't being cooperative. But that's not an illness. And in order to see them, I would have to put down an illness. I saw a woman once uh, who had had a stroke, and she was first learning to speak again. And she got the news that her 39-year-old grandson, a successful attorney for reasons unclear, had committed suicide. And she was aghast, and she was devastated. Right? I worked with her because she wanted me to. I held her hand and I comforted her. But what I did had nothing to do with treating an illness. And to see her, I put down 
adjustment disorder with depressed mood, right? Well, she couldn't adjust to the death of her child, her grandson, which I had no problem saying. But again, to say she had a disorder really bothered the hell out of me. What is the normal thing to do for a woman in her late 80s to do who's lying in bed in diapers, who can hardly speak, and now learns that, that the, her grandson, whom she adored, had committed suicide? What's normal for that? Okay. And when you ask the question that way, you end up in a different place. But the place you end up with is if the individual wants to talk with you, you can provide comfort, you can provide information, you can provide all kinds of good help, but it ain't a treatment. And you're not curing or treating the symptoms of anything that I would call either an illness or a disorder. So the words matter. I believe the words matter. All right? That's about what I wanted to say. Um, I hope everybody will read my book. I always push the book. Uh, originally, I wrote it in part for ego. And I wrote it because it's a summing up my, as my life as a teacher and as a psychologist. But as I've left the field and find myself freer to say what I want, I am so horrified by what goes on as more and more children are being drugged with brain-disabling uh, damaging drugs to make them behave in school. Yeah, I, I, I <coughs> excuse me. I had to uh, finish up to, how do you really help somebody? You help somebody in one of two ways. You can help them understand how they're contributing to their own life problems or help them understand that they have to change their relationships and where they live to the degree that they can in order to be who they are and not be called crazy. And I have no problem with the word crazy. It simply means somebody who behaves in a way that we don't understand why, and we feel they shouldn't behave that way. It's a moral term, but at least it's better crazy than saying they have a mythical illness and that the way to treat it is with some kind of a powerful drug. Uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, you can look this up, Google, Google, because you have information that I didn't have when I was in school. Uh, Google side effects of psychiatric drugs, especially for children. Google it. Uh, Google the name Peter Bregan. P-E-T-E-R-B-R-E-G-G-I-N. Bregan is one of the leaders, in, uh, a psychiatrist, and one of the leaders in helping people understand uh, the myth of mental illness and the way in which these drugs can operate. Um, uh, we find, for example, that eight of ten school shootings in the last several years by youngsters who brought guns to school and killed little children or their fellow students had been turned over to psychiatrists and they had been given stimulant drugs or antidepressant drugs for uh, uh, their psychiatric problems, within a couple of weeks of the time, they committed their crimes. Right. In England, they so now believe in the correlation between violence and violent behavior that nobody under the age of 18 
can be prescribed the stimulant drugs and antidepressant drugs. You could look that up too. Right? It's really an American problem at this point because the country is so much in the hold of corporations uh, who, are, who create uh, and hold on to so much of the political establishment uh, and, and makes it very hard to get information out. Uh, go online and put in voice hearers. Voice hearers. People who hear voices. And what you discover is that all over the civilized world, there are groups of people who hear voices. And what you discover is they never want to say it out loud. They don't want to talk about it because they know how they'll be diagnosed. Some of them hate it and don't want the voices to continue. Others of them enjoy it. Some of them can turn them on and turn them off. So it's a very complicated issue. And maybe millions of people hear voices. I can theorize, and I do in my book, as to one of the reasons or some of the reasons, but I really don't know the mechanism by which this works. Uh, I do know that all of us have conversations in our head uh, that can become very active and very emotional with people we know, people we love, people we don't love, uh, but we don't actually hear them audibly. Why some do and some don't is a mystery to be solved. So, that's enough for today. That's enough. Uh, in the age of the tweet, a half hour of listening to somebody uh, is, is, uh, is a lot. Uh, I know when I was in college, uh, usually unless a professor or a teacher was really, had a real gift for, for speaking, after 20 minutes, a half hour, I don't care what they were saying, I was looking out the window and hoping for the bell. Uh, it's very hard to listen for long periods of time <coughs> under the best of circumstances. <coughs> and I have to get a drink of water because I'm choking on my own air at this point. So if you're in the field, stay in the field. Oh, by the way, yes, this is so important. If you look at what happened to Zoss, and I could tell you personal stories where towards the end of my career I was attacked for teaching what I was teaching, that is critical of the, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness. And when I did that, I would start with the oppositional defiant disorder, children who oppose authority. And the students who heard me and listened to me said, oh my goodness, that's clearly, it's political. You're crazy if you don't listen to authority. Whose authority? Maybe the authority has the problem. Maybe they, they, they don't know how to discipline. Maybe they don't know how to control. I mean, we're having a lot of stuff, a dialogue now, about how police treat people uh, <clears throat> under certain circumstances and kill them. Uh, who's the criminal? I mean, it raises all kinds of moral questions that need to be have discussion about. If you criticize a psychologist who's a true believer especially when you're a student, unless you do it artfully and say, I read this or I heard that, what do you think? You can be in trouble. Uh, when you openly criticize the field, it operates in many ways like a religion, an authoritarian religion. And the quickest way to be diagnosed as mentally ill is to say there's no openly 
and, and, and forthrightly say there's no such thing as mental illness. Some of the people you say this to will give you a wink and a nod. But the field would collapse in a minute. Psychiatry would be gone. If the public believed what I am saying. Now, many people who hear me speak, I know say, boy, that guy is crazy for what he's saying. But that's an old story. You don't like the message, attack the messenger. You don't like the message, kill the messenger. That, that was, you know, I think it was a Roman philosopher who first said that. Right? You don't like what I'm saying, defeat the argument. Defeat the argument. But do some reading on the mind-body problem, on the recognition that the mind is made up of activity. It's not a thing you could lose. It's not like your wallet or your keys. All kinds of issues feed into this. And if you agree with what I'm saying here and what I write and others, you can contact me on this show. Um, when When it's archived, there's a place for messages. You could leave me a message. Um, if you really want to, and you want to expose yourself publicly, I'll put you on. I'll do a show with you. Uh, next Friday, I'm going to do a show with a, a woman who's three children. She's now uh, uh, retired and, and a grandma, but her three children were diagnosed uh, uh, with learning disabilities and all kinds of stuff, and terrible things happen. She'll talk about that story and why she is now an activist trying to defeat this model and this behavior of saying children uh, who don't behave well in school uh, or can't learn in the proper way, in the proper setting of the school, um, should be drugged or even diagnosed as disordered. Um, When you read in my book, I talk about my wife, who is a splendid, loving, fantastic special ed teacher. And when I would listen to her, how she taught, I said to her, every child should be, have this kind of education available. Small classes, individual attention. The teacher is not overwhelmed with 20, 30, 40 kids in the room. You base your grades on the efforts of the kid, not necessarily sort them from top to bottom, creating winners and losers. Right? But to get my wife is a teacher or other excellent special ed teachers or speech therapists, the child first has to be diagnosed as disordered, disabled, or ill. And that's a problem. That's enough for today. Whoever listened, thank you. Whoever will listen, thank you. And that's it. It's time to... uh, see what the political situation is and call back some people uh, that I owe a phone call to. And so I'm going to end the episode.